This is your public radio station for more than 37 years, KUAF 91.3 FM, and this is Ozarks at Large for Thursday, May 12th, 2022. I'm Timothy Dennis. And I'm Matthew Moore. Ahead this hour, the Buffalo National River is expecting a record turnout this summer. That's in about 12 minutes. And later this hour, Jacqueline Froelich takes us on a walking tour of Mount Sequoia Center in Fayetteville. And Paul Gatling talks with the new CEO of Arvest Bank's Wealth Management Division. That's in today's edition of the Northwest Arkansas Business Journal Report. Those stories and more, but first, St. Paul's Episcopal Church in Fayetteville continues its Tippy McMichael Lecture Series this weekend. Dr. Elliot West, a professor and historian at the University of Arkansas, will deliver the latest lecture in the series, covering the history of ghost dancers, Wounded Knee, and Native American survival, where the infamous Wounded Knee Massacre left hundreds of Native Americans dead, mostly women and children. Ozarks at Large's Rachel Sanchez-Smith asked West how he plans to cover such a multifaceted and intricate story. It was a time at the very end of the 19th century, 1889 to 1890, in which Indian peoples had been defeated militarily. Their, all resistance had been, had been crushed. Uh, they had been um, largely dispossessed and confined to reservations, agencies. And those agencies were intended to essentially to transform them into people who would fit into the mainstream of American cultural life. So their cultures were under attack under siege. Um, they had lost their lands or control of their lands at least. Uh, so it was, a, it was a bad time, bad time for them. How do you go about telling a history that's so nuanced, that is so rich? How much context do you feel like you need to provide for the audience at the McMichael <laughs> series? It's, of course, it's always, always a question uh, when you have 40 minutes to talk about something that's enormously complicated. Uh, I should say that um, I'll be drawing very heavily on recent work that has been done on this. This is not my own research, but there has been some fascinating uh, and very revealing work that's been done over the past uh, over the past 10 years or so. Uh, part of it by one of my students, uh, a graduate of the doctoral program in our department, Justin Gage. Uh, so we know a lot more about it. And what we know about it now, we cast it in a, in a, in a very revealing light, one that tells us a lot about what's going on, not only among Native peoples at the end of the century, but in America at large, at the nation at large. So I'll try to, I'll try to, um, <laughs> you know, to finesse that as well as I can. But it is a complicated story. It is. And first, the story of Wounded Knee was so commonly referred to as a battle, but in more recent history, in a survey of the death toll, mm-hmm. really paints the confrontation as a massacre. As a historian, how do you confront telling a story that's been told in so many different ways, so in many different so ways. many different lights? Yeah. Well, as I said, we have some new research now that puts it in a new light. Uh, it was a massacre. Let's be very clear about that. There were deaths on, on the side of the army. Um, how many of those were inflicted by the Indians? No, I can tell. Probably the majority of them were from friendly fire. So at least 250 persons were killed, almost uh, most of them women and children. They were slaughtered um, once the firing began. There was never any contest about who was going to win it. It was not a battle in that sense. But uh, some of these people were – uh, were gunned down as they, women and children as they took refuge in a, in a ditch and the soldiers just came up to the edge of the ditch and shot them shot them dead. Uh, so it was a massacre. Uh, but this whole episode of the ghost dance uh, and, and wounded, it's often portrayed in popular culture as, a, as the ending of something. You know, it, was, it was like this terrible uh, punctuation mark at the end of 
American Indian history. They had lost their independence, and so it, this sort of ties into this uh, this very mischievous and totally incorrect idea of the vanishing American. You know that not only are Indians gone, but the Indian way of life uh, has not survived. That is absolutely wrong. Uh, and if you study the Ghost Dance and you study Wounded Knee, uh, I think uh, what I will try to do. Is to, is to emphasize that, in fact, uh, Indian peoples are extraordinarily resilient and adaptive, and this all was just one chapter in that. Um, what was the significance of the ghost movement, and do we see remnants of that cultural importance trickle down through generation mm-hmm. and, and remnants of the, the form of resistance that Plain Indians practice in the face of forced assimilation? Yeah, uh, Sure. It was um, it was a kind of resistance. Remember, as I said a moment ago, Indians were under cultural assault, and just at that point, this religion uh, appeared in uh, the far western Nevada, around the Walker River Reservation. Its prophet was a man named Wovoka, and that was his Paiute name. He had an English name, Jack Wilson. <laughs> he had uh, he had spent part of his um, part of growing up with a, with the Wilson family, and he. What Ravoka said was that he had fallen into a trance, uh, had uh, traveled to heaven beyond the Milky Way, uh, and there had been instructed by God, their God, um, how his people would be able to revive their older ways and how the earth could be regenerated, uh, how the good times could return, uh, the dead would return. That's the term, ghost of dance. Um, they, had to, they had to perform certain rituals, including this, this dance. Uh, they had to live by uh, very strict moral codes. Uh, but if they did that, he said, and if they uh, kept the faith uh, that this would happen. So in a way, that it's resistance in, in that sense. Uh, if you look more closely at it, as I, as I will try to do Saturday night, uh, there's all kinds of fascinating nuances of that, uh, that that make it a more complex story. Uh, and by no means simply a story of these backward-looking people frozen in the past trying to save the vanished world. It's much more than that. Uh, but your question also was, is, are there any um, survivals of this? And absolutely. The ghost dance itself survived uh, in parts of the West until the 1920s. But more, uh, more to the point, uh, what you see <laughs> across the West, across the nation, are many, many cases in which uh, Native peoples' religions, while in many ways they are outwardly Christian, uh, in fact, they are they are woven through with other Native traditions. What they have done, once again, is to adapt, to assimilate. They have forms of Christianity, and they have given it their own stamp uh, in a way of preserving their culture within this new within this new religious uh, uh, tradition. And you see it. In addition, of course, there are native, strictly native religions uh, that have survived. The most uh, famous ca- uh, example of this, of course, is the Native American Church, which also arose during these periods. Uh, it was called a peyote religion at that time. It's a it's a recognized church today. Uh, the, uh, the the federal government in nineteen in the nineteen seventies uh, gave it permission for them to uh, to consume peyote as part of their uh, as part of their rituals, just as the federal government during prohibition uh, gave uh, Christian churches the right to consume wine during uh, during communion. So, that's an example of a native uh, of a native religion which is shot through again with Christian uh, ideas, uh, but. More common than that are uh, 
the ways in which Native people have taken uh, the Christian denominations, uh, Christian's belief and practices and liturgies, uh, and give the, and given them their own their own particular stamp, their oh, own meanings. Right. Yeah. What kind of evidence? What kind of research documents can we? Do we know this history from? Is it through oral tradition? Is it through letters, documents? <laughs> How do we know all of this? <laughs> well, uh, you know, as I said, as you can guess, uh, this has been studied over and over and over and over again. Uh, and most of the research has been based on uh, documents written by, of course, the white government and white, and white people. Um, even a lot of the earlier research was based on oral history. Some man named James Mooney, who was a famous anthropologist, uh, interviewed Wovoka and others. Um, what we see today uh, is uh, the is part of this new research is the is the discovery of other documents or the or the use of other other kinds of documents. Again, uh, my student Justin Cage uh, has written this extraordinary book uh, that came out last year uh, that is based on his. Indefat- indefatigable uh, gathering of thousands of letters written by Indians or dictated by Indians. Here's a wonderful irony. Um, you know, we sent Indian children to re- off-reservation schools. The purpose of that uh, was to was to b- obliterate their own their own cultures, uh, and part of that effort was to teach them English and to teach them and make them literate. What they did was take that literacy and use it to correspond among these dozens of groups across the West uh, to cultivate this own this, this sense of separate Indian identity. It's a wonderful <laughs> it, it's a wonderful irony. But those are examples of documents uh, that we have begun to look at now that Justin has looked at and given us an entirely different view of what was going on on these on these reservations. These were not people sort of confined in cages. They were visiting hundreds of miles sometimes uh, among each other. And um, um, and uh, really, uh, once again, taking advantage of this new situation, adapting to it, and putting it to their own, putting it to their own uh, devices for their own purposes. And what was your initial reaction to this newfound research and to find new information? I mean, what was that reaction like? <laughs> well, initial ex- uh, reaction was, uh, "Holy cow!" <laughs> <laughs> I, I, didn't, I didn't know this, but this makes perfect sense yeah. when you see this in the larger context of Native history from the time of the first European contact. This makes perfect sense. This is the theme. This is simply a, uh, a more recent example uh, of a theme that goes back you know, to the early 17th century. U of A professor and historian Dr. Elliot West will be speaking at St. Paul's Episcopal Church this Saturday at 7 as the latest guest in the Tippy McMichael Lecture Series. He spoke with Ozarks at Large's Rachel Sanchez-Smith yesterday. KUAF is supported by Hendricks College in Conway, home of Life Launch, a new one-week residential summer program for rising high school juniors and seniors to explore career planning and experience college life. Now accepting applications for its inaugural session, which begins June 2022. More information is available at hendricks.edu slash life launch. The Botanical Garden of the Ozarks presents Chefs in the Garden, Tuesday, May 24th from 5 to 8 p.m. This event features sweet and savory culinary creations from over a dozen area chefs served in the garden. Wine and craft beer are also included. Tickets and more information available at 
bgozarks.org. This is Ozarks at Large. The Buffalo National River is preparing for record visitors this summer. Park interpreter Cassie Brandstetter says the park has seen an uptick in people during the past two years because of the COVID-19 pandemic. We've had a lot of visitation over the last couple of years. Um, during the pandemic, people have felt a little bit more comfortable being outside, being able to spread out and make memories with their families in these wide open public land spaces. She says the park saw 1.5 million visitors in 2020. That influx brought more than $66 million in revenue to communities around the river, according to a report from NPS Economists. This year marks the river's 50th anniversary as a national park. Brandstetter says the Park Service has events planned throughout the year to mark the milestone. And our next big weekend of events will be in June. On June 11th, we're having a large free concert out of our Tyler Bend Visitor Center, right in the middle of the river. And we'll have other events throughout that weekend celebrating the many ways that this natural area has inspired artwork, whether that be music or painting or the inspiration that can be found here as a benefit to us all. Brandstetter says the Buffalo offers hiking, floating, and other recreation options for people of all skill levels and fitness abilities, but stresses that guests should take precautions before visiting the park. It's really important to think about water safety if you're coming. Um, Make sure that you are prepared for going out in a canoe or a kayak, um, that you're familiar with the type of activity, that you have life jackets with you, that you have strong swimmers in your group. Um, We always want to make sure that our trips here are not only enjoyable for those who are coming, but they're also safe. And to be prepared with water, with food, because we want you to make amazing memories. For information on the Buffalo National River and the 50th anniversary celebrations, you can go to nps.gov slash b-u-f-f. Arkansas Attorney General Leslie Rutledge is filing a lawsuit alleging drug companies conspired to artificially inflate the price of life-saving drugs. Rutledge announced the lawsuit Wednesday against drug makers Sanofi, Eli Lilly, and Novo Nordisk, which together represent about 99% of all insulin on the market. She says the companies have continued to raise the price of insulin despite the cost of making the drug going down. Manufacturer's cost to produce insulin is about $2 per drug. In 1990, the synthetic drug sold for approximately $20 per drug. Today, the selling price has skyrocketed to between $300 and $700 per drug. The lawsuit also names the companies Express Scripts, Caremark, and Optum, which are known as Pharmacy Benefit Managers, or PBMs. Rutledge says the companies essentially sold access to their list of drugs approved by insurance plans, enriching both manufacturers and PBMs. The PBMs pay the drug manufacturers the outrageous and inflated cost because the PBMs give the drug manufacturers access to their approved drug list in exchange for keeping a significant portion of the manufacturer's payments. Essentially, the manufacturers are buying positions on the approved drug list, which increases revenues and PBMs keep part of the payments and profit. Rutledge says the lawsuit is being brought under the state's Deceptive Trade Practices Act, which could force companies to pay as much as $10,000 for each instance of overcharging customers. More than 400,000 Arkansans have diabetes, and another another 800,000 are considered pre-diabetic.
Time now for today's Northwest Arkansas Business Journal Report. I'm Paul Gatling. Did you know that for the first time in its company history, Walmart's economic team now includes a chief economist? John List, a distinguished professor at the University of Chicago, fills that role for the Bentonville retailer. Tom Ward, Walmart's chief e-commerce officer, shared the news in a LinkedIn post last month. Ward's social media post included these comments about Walmart's new chief economist. John is an expert in behavioral economics and will help us use data to create a clearer understanding of why customers make the choices they do so we can make sure we're giving customers and members more of what they want. List joined the University of Chicago faculty in 2005. He's also a published author and previously worked as chief economist for both Uber and Lyft. We reported that news in the current issue of the Business Journal, which you can now find online at nwabusinessjournal.com. We've got more news after the break on today's Northwest Arkansas Business Journal report. Support for the Northwest Arkansas Business Journal report is provided by the Arkansas State Chamber of Commerce and Associated Industries of Arkansas. The Chamber's mission is to promote a pro-business, free enterprise agenda and prevent legislation, regulation, and rules that hinder business. ArkansasStateChamber.com Arkansas Blue Cross and Blue Shield. For more than 70 years, Arkansas Blue Cross and Blue Shield has used its knowledge and compassion to create health care solutions for individuals and businesses. More information at ArkansasBlueCross.com. First Security is proud to be only in Arkansas. They offer smart solutions for personal and business banking, plus convenient services and community investment. First Security. Member FDIC. Equal housing lender. Harvest Bank has named Asa Cottrell as the next CEO of its Wealth Management Division, Harvest Wealth Management. Cottrell will start the job in June, replacing Jim King, who announced his retirement just a few weeks ago. Cottrell has served as sales manager for Harvest Bank in Little Rock since 2016. That followed 22 years with Harvest Wealth Management. He began his career as a client advisor in Salem Springs and later became a regional manager working with the Little Rock and Fort Smith markets. I spoke with Cottrell earlier this week about his new job, which he describes as a homecoming. It's very much a homecoming. I, I, spent, I started with the bank on the wealth. We didn't call it our best wealth management back then, but I started on the wealth management side with the bank. And I spent probably 20 plus years in, the, in that division and with that group of associates. And to, to me, I, I like to use that phrase because it really is a homecoming. Go back to uh, just kind of describe the circumstances, you know, that, that led you to go to work for Arvest Bank uh, all those those many years ago. Are you a native Arkansan, or just kind of how did that connection come about? Yeah, I am. I was born and raised in Little Rock. Uh, mm-hmm. I've got a phenomenal mom. Was raised by a single mom. Um, you know, she did an unbelievable job here in Little Rock. Uh, great friends, great family here in Little Rock. Graduated, went to the University of Arkansas. Um, at some point in my career at the university, I got an opportunity to intern with what was called Dean Witter back then, which was a wirehouse brokerage firm yeah. before it yeah. 
before it changed names to Morgan Stanley. And so I, I interned with Dean Witter, and I worked for them for a couple of years. I uh, really enjoyed what I did in helping people. And at some point, uh, had an opportunity to go to work for Nations Bank uh, before it became Bank of America in Dallas, Texas. Uh, and so we worked for Nations Bank down in Dallas. Um, really, just to be blunt, missed Northwest Arkansas. Mm-hmm. Right? So I had, I had left Little Rock. I'd gone to Fayetteville. I'd worked for Dean Witter. Really enjoyed Northwest Arkansas. Thought I would move to Dallas, work for Nations Bank. Got down to Dallas. And, and you know, no offense to people who are from Dallas, but, you know, Fayetteville <laughs> was a much better place to live for me at the time. So um, I was looking for an opportunity to come back. And a friend of mine that uh, worked for, you know, what we call Arvest now said, hey, there, there's an opportunity here. Why, why don't you talk to us? And so in 1994, I started working um, for what we call Arvest now um, and just started working as an advisor, working with customers, helping them with financial planning and investment management and trust services. Any, anything that they needed help with, that's what we do. And so that's what I did. So for so for people who may not know that relationship between the Arvest Bank and then AWM, Arvest Wealth Management, as it's known today, just kind of explain the division's place and the overall Arvest company uh, hierarchy, if you will, and just kind of what's unique about that division within a community bank. Yeah, I would say, well, two things there stand out to me. One, it is unique, and I love that you recognize that, Paul. We, we are actually part of our best, right? So we're, we're not a, a third-party leasing space in the lobbies of our banks. Uh, we are actually part of, we are a division of our best um, and part of the part of the organization. Our, our associates are part of our best. Um, it, it, there's, there's really no separation other than the regulatory and compliance separation that has to be there because of the services that we offer. Uh, but that's great. And that is unique, Paul, but probably because you're in Northwest Arkansas, you, you, you recognize it. We are not a third party. We are not leasing space. We are part of the organization. Uh, we are part of the culture. We are part of the mission statement. Getting back into the wealth management side of things now, after you've been on the, the retail sales there in Little Rock for the past few years, what is, from your perspective, what's what's changed maybe in the last couple of years um, due to COVID and then maybe even more recently due to the, you know, economic factors and inflation and geopolitical factors has, has all of that led to a greater need from you, from your clients for services, or is it on the decline or just kind of what's the wealth management space look like right now? Sure. Well, so two things, one, there's a, there's a larger answer there and then I'll narrow down into the last couple of years. Um, you know, the, the last basically seven years, I've, I've worked with our bank on the bank side. Um, what, what I would tell you is Artist Wealth Management has grown almost to $16 billion mm-hmm. um, in assets. Uh, so they, they've experienced really tremendous growth in the last decade. Um, I think they've got somewhere around 400 associates now helping customers. And so really, um, the division itself has grown quite a bit. And it, it's really neat to see what Jim King and his leadership and those associates have been able to accomplish in the last seven years. 
And that is Asa Cottrell, incoming CEO of Arvest Wealth Management, the large and growing wealth management division of Arvest Bank. We've got more of that story online at nwabusinessjournal.com. Also online this week, Monday was Earnings Day for Tyson Foods, which is the largest meat company in the U.S. by sales. Not surprisingly, soaring meat prices pushed the company's earnings up accordingly. Tyson Foods reported net income of $829 million in the second fiscal quarter, and that's up 74% from a year ago. For the first half of fiscal 2022, the company's net income was $1.95 billion, more than double $928 million earned in the same period a year ago. Tennessee-based Freight Waves hosted a big supply chain event in Rogers this week that brought in attendees from across the country. Kim Souza has a roundup at nwabusinessjournal.com from the final day on Tuesday discussing signs of a freight recession. She also has some comments from Stuart Walton and Cyrus Sagari about Northwest Arkansas's emerging reputation as an incubator for transportation and logistics technology and innovation. And Tawnytown-based service provider Pascal Air Plumbing and Electric continues to expand throughout Arkansas. The company announced Monday a deal to acquire GTS Heating and Air of Hot Springs. Pascal now has more than 250 employees and approximately 160 service vehicles, covering northwest Arkansas, southwest Missouri, the Fort Smith Metro, and central Arkansas. I'm Paul Gatling, and that's the Northwest Arkansas Business Journal Report. Until next time, thanks for listening. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Matthew Moore. With me in the Herald and Blanche Cock News Studio is Timothy Dennis. Hello, Timothy. Hello, Matthew. It's that time of the week, right? Absolutely. It's warming up. It's time to whip out some mojitos <laughs> and enjoy some live music. Timothy, what do you have for us? Okay, there's a lot of stuff happening this weekend, as there typically is. Absolutely. I'm sounding like a broken record at this point. But again, as always, we will have a more complete list at our website, ozarksatlarge.com. Great. Okay, let's start with tomorrow night. Smoke and Barrel Tavern in Fayetteville is going to have the King Cabbage Brass Band. They're a Tulsa-based brass band. Fantastic. Say that five times fast. I can't. I can't. <laughs> Admission for that show is $15 at the door, $10 if you're a student. They're celebrating graduation weekend. Fantastic. That show is set to get underway at about 10 o'clock tomorrow night. Again, that's at the Smoke and Barrel Tavern in downtown Fayetteville. Very good. In North Fayetteville, JJ's Live is having another big ticket show featuring Black Label Society. Oh, very good.
Tickets for that one start at $35. That gets underway at 7 o'clock tomorrow night. Again, that's at JJ's Live in North Fayetteville. Very good. Moving farther to the north to Springdale, Black Apple on Emma Avenue is going to have Patty Steele and Jeff Kearney, both heavyweights in our local music scene. Yes. That show gets underway at... 6 o'clock tomorrow night, again at Black Apple on Emma Avenue in Springdale. Very good. Up in Bentonville, Bike Rack Brewing Company is going to have local folk artist Will Saylor on their patio. Mm-hmm. Seattle ain't so bad. Don't you see? The patio show, free admission, gets underway at 7 o'clock tomorrow night. Again, that's at Bike Rack Brewing in Bentonville. Still in Bentonville, Fred's Hickory Inn is going to have the group One Penny Shy on their patio. Yes. They're a modern folk duo. I've actually had the two members of that group, Becky Adams and Jacob Campbell, in our Furman Garner performance studio several years ago, but they are incredible. Yes. It's all just color and shade. I'm building a highway Because I still can't stay in one place But you could show me how You could You could That show gets underway at 7 o'clock tomorrow night at the patio at Fred's Hickory Inn. Butterfield Stage in Rogers, another outdoor show. Uh-huh. They're going to have friends of the show, Smokey in the Mirror, yes. Three Penny Acre, and Ryan Pickup. My daddy was that is a free show at the Butterfield Stage. It's part of the Rail Yard Live series. Gets underway at 7 o'clock tomorrow night. Again, that's at Butterfield Stage in downtown Rogers. Excellent. In Eureka Springs, the Gravel Bar is going to have a performer by the name of Sebastian Bordeaux. He's originally from San Diego, but he performs original music that's inspired by a range of genres. Mm. That show gets underway at 7 o'clock tomorrow night, again at the Gravel Bar in Eureka Springs. Good. Down in Fort Smith, Temple Live is going to have Dylan Scott and Dylan Marlowe, a pair of Dylans I love on stage. That. They both kind of play contemporary country music. Tickets start at $35, gets underway at 8 o'clock tomorrow night, again at Temple Live in Fort Smith. Okay, now let's jump ahead to Saturday. Excellent. Kingfish in Fayetteville, another outdoor venue, is going to have the rock and roll band Vintage Pistol on stage. Nice. Smoking roaches out of Jeff's ashtray, he says, buddy, they up and slow. Except for you, man, you don't smoke, you keep the prices down. That show, again, celebration of graduation night, uh, gets underway at 9 o'clock again at Kingfish in downtown Fayetteville. 
Prairie Street Live in Fayetteville. They're going to have a set filled with local folk starting at 4 o'clock Saturday, featuring Eureka Strings, Charlie Mellinger, and Three Pines, as well as several others. Excellent. Uh, cover for that show is $15. That gets underway at 4 o'clock Saturday afternoon at Prairie Street Live in Fayetteville. Farther north in Fayetteville, Nomad's Trailside in the Midtown area is going to have a trio of folk-ish musicians, including Patty Steele, Jesse Daniel Edwards, and Paige Van Horn. Cover for that show is $5. Gets underway at 8 o'clock Saturday, again at Nomad's Trailside in Midtown Fayetteville. Very good. Up in Bentonville, Meteor Guitar Gallery is going to have a rock show featuring Frail State, Lilac Cruise, and Patient Eyes. Covers $10, gets underway at 7 o'clock Saturday again at Meteor Guitar Gallery in Bentonville. Yes. Saturday night at Butterfield Stage in Rogers, they're going to have the final in a series of concerts uh, put on by Black Fret and the House of Songs. They're mm-hmm. featuring Arkansas, Rachel Ammons, and Western Youth. Yes. Missions free for that show gets underway at seven o'clock. That is at Butterfield Stage in Rogers Saturday night. Yes. Moving on, the Gravel Bar in Eureka Springs is going to have a blues show featuring Blue Reed and the Flatheads. Mm. That show gets underway at seven o'clock. Again, that's Saturday night at the Gravel Bar in Eureka Springs. Still in Eureka Springs Saturday, Got a Hole Brewing is going to have Rebecca Jed in their beer garden. Mm. She's originally from Texas, lives here now. She's kind of a folk singer songwriter. Baby, you can drive me, just drive me around at any time. In your ATV, all terrain, ain't no mountain we can't climb. Oh, baby, you're making my heart pound. Next time you drive me up that mountain, I ain't coming down. That gets underway at 6 o'clock in the beer garden at Gotahold Brewing in Eureka Springs. And then jumping ahead all the way to next Thursday, just okay. a programming note, yeah. we will not have a normal 7 o'clock edition of Ozarks at Large That's because right. Mozart in the Museum is happening again. That's right. Uh, it begins at 7 o'clock next Thursday evening at Crystal Bridges. We will have it live on the air and also in person at Crystal Bridges in the Great Hall. That's right, yes. And Lee Wood, our general manager, is going to be there at Crystal Bridges. On our behalf, we'll be having that live on the air here on KUAF. And also that day is the next Lunch Hour concert featuring Adam Fawcett. That's right, that's right. Lots of great music. It's going to be hard to... uh, to find something not to do. Yeah, I I don't know what I'm going to do because there are way too many options. Par- <laughs> paralysis by choice, right? That's right. That's right. Thank you, Timothy. Thank you. The Lunch Hour, KUAF's monthly concert series, returns May 19th with a performance by Adam Fawcett and food from the Farmer's Table Cafe. This happy hour edition of The Lunch Hour begins at 5 p.m. Space is limited. Registration and more information at KUAF.com. The Lunch Hour is sponsored by George's Majestic Lounge Happy Hour Concerts, 
a Fayetteville tradition for over 40 years. More at georgeslive.com. The Artisphere Festival Orchestra returns to Walton Arts Center with two main stage concerts under the baton of maestro Corrado Rivera's, featuring more than 90 premier musicians from around the world. Presenting works by Piazzolla, Martucci, and Mendelssohn on May 23rd, and an evening of Strauss and Stravinsky, May 27th. Tickets and more at artisphererefestival.org. This is Ozarks at Large, and I'm Matthew Moore. Mount Sequoia Center, a former Methodist retreat-turned-nonprofit community arts and cultural center in Fayetteville, is celebrating a centennial anniversary starting this year. Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich walks around the grounds in full spring bloom and rain to bring us this story. On a chill, drizzly, foggy morning on Mount Sequoia, a forested parcel filled with historic buildings and gardens, Rick Wimpy, a retired Texas utility administrator and volunteer stonemason, forester, and gardener here, provides a tour. I haven't counted them, but there are many, many gardens up here, and some have kind of gotten overgrown through the years, to say the least, and I'm trying to get those back. Mount Sequoia Center Director Emily Gentry, wearing a vintage trench coat to protect from the rain, strolls the grounds with us. We're very interested in trying to add an education component to all the gardens up here. Um, I love to see signage. I love to see people looking at the plants in the gardens up here and maybe learning a little something about their own hometown, what grows well, um, what looks good, and then some of the medicinal properties are even new to me. So um, anything we can do to help increase the education value up here is great for us too. And to encourage visitors, walking trails are being installed on the property. Yes, we want to see people walking on the grounds and enjoying the property up here. I think for a long time people haven't felt welcome. Um, It's felt like closed off. It's felt private. There have been no trespassing signs. And obviously we want people to be respectful, but we do want people to feel like this is part of their community. That's because until six years ago, this was a privately run Methodist retreat center. Wimpy shows us where he's attached one of six bluebird houses on a tree, this one currently filled with the clutch of tiny blue eggs. He says recent Arctic winters on the Ozarks have drastically reduced certain native bird populations, and these nesting boxes help to rebuild lost flocks. He also maintains a few large snags, dead trees on the grounds, especially relished and occupied by woodpeckers. We do. We have bird habitat signs here just to let people know that there are many kinds of birds up here, from bluebirds, of course, redbirds, crows, mockingbirds, uh, uh, robins. Uh, I even saw an oriole the other day. They're coming through. They're migrating. Uh, And my favorite, Mississippi kites. They're beautiful, beautiful birds, and they're up here all over the mountain. Wimpy's noting such changes, having volunteered here for the past five years. As raindrops fall on his umbrella, he provides a litany of trees on campus. Well, there there are oak trees, pine trees, uh, maples. We've got plenty of maples up here. We have a lot of dogwoods that people have planted all along the skyline over here on the east side. It's lined with dogwoods. Uh, There's some um, black tupelos an elder massive bodark, or Osage orange tree, grows below center headquarters, likely alive around when Mount Sequoia Center was first established in 1922 by the Methodist Episcopal Church as a religious retreat where regional summer assemblies were held. 
We stop in front of Sequoia Hall, one of the oldest structures. Um, it's also been called the Elza Stevens Remmel Building and Wesley Hall. It was built by the Women's Missionary Society. It, they started building it in 1927. They finished building it in 1937. The Women's Missionary Society had women staying here from all over the country, doing training, events, um, I think coming in for rest. Gentry says the center offers lots of programming year-round for grown-ups and families, including summer camp for kids scheduled to start soon, adult art-making classes, culinary events, outdoor musical performances, and more. We walk to a place on the far end of the property where many Methodist retreatants back in the day would gather for outdoor worship on comfortable benches facing a stone altar. It's called Vesper Point. Vesper is a long time ago was the name of a type of service, uh, like church service. Um, usually evening time, I think usually candle lit. Uh, so that's where the name, I think, originated. And now we use it for our, like, their, the churches have done services out here. We do it for a lot of weddings, though. The final stop across from Young Lodge, a historic farmhouse on this land, is Cross Overlook. Beneath is a panoramic view of Fayetteville, this morning veiled in heavy fog. Cross was built in, I believe, 1937-38. Um, it's lighted now. It wasn't originally lighted. Uh, but the overlook is enjoyed by everybody. I mean, people come up. They get to sit and look out over the city, um, maybe enjoy some fog, <laughs> um, or see the weather or rain coming in. Um, it is truly a wonderful spot. We see engagements happen here. Um, we see couples having deep conversations here. We see uh, people grieving. Um, they'll come up and grieve or they'll come up and celebrate um, something that's happened in their life. So we see a lot of personal moments happening up here, too. Previously named East Mountain, Mount Sequoia also served as a rough Confederate Civil War camp where forces shelled Union soldiers and sympathizers in the town below during the 1863 Battle of Fayetteville. Such histories will be illuminated during the coming Centennial Year celebration. Search mountsequoia.org for details and come up here and take a hike. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jacqueline Froelich. Every story, feature, or interview you hear on Ozarks at Large can be found at our website, ozarksatlarge.com. While you're there, you can also find links to help you easily share those stories through email or social media. Associate Professor at the University of Arkansas Music Department, expanding our musical boundaries with Sound Perimeter. We open Sound Perimeter today with Miguel del Aguila's Silence, performed by Tyler Guzman, clarinet, and Gail Novak, piano. 
Written in 2013 by Uruguayan-American composer Miguel del Aguila, Silence is a slow, nostalgic, and introspective work. Its simple structure is dominated by a recurring lyrical theme which contains elements from 1940s Latin jazz and tango. This highly melodic and expressive work was inspired by the sudden passing of the composer's brother Nelson del Aguila, and it expresses the sadness of this loss.
That was Miguel de la Aguila's piece for clarinet and piano, Silence, performed by Tyler Guzman and Gail Novak. Composer Elisa Morris serves as assistant professor of oboe at Kansas State University. Known also as a composer, her music is performed extensively around the world and has been described by the American Record Guide as elegant and imaginative. Alisa Morris has been a featured performer and composer on NPR program Performance Today and live on Kansas Public Radio's program Classical Music in the Morning. In her piece, Four Personalities, Morris explores different textures through the movement, which are based on the Hartman Color Code Personality Test. Hartman says, yellows love to have fun. The joy of living in the moment and doing something just for the sake of doing it is the driving force for these people. Yellows offer the gifts of enthusiasm and optimism. They are generally charismatic, spontaneous, and sociable. Let us listen to oboist Catherine Needleman and pianist Hanshian Lee performing Yellow, the first movement of Elisa Morris' piece Four Personalities, written in 2007 and recorded in 2019 during a live recital at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. That was oboist Catherine Needleman and pianist Hanshin Lee performing Yellow, the first movement of Alisa Morris' piece for personalities. Let there be spaces in your togetherness and let the winds of the heavens dance between you, said Lebanese poet Khalil Gibran in his famous book The Prophet. I hope you enjoy today's Dancing Winds, and I hope you fill your empty spaces with music as well. 
This is Leah Uribe, Associate Professor at the University of Arkansas Music Department, expanding our musical boundaries with Sound Perimeter. Sound Perimeter is a segment dedicated to diverse voices in and around music. I hope it'll expand your knowledge and connection to inclusive sounds and let music infiltrate your lives and transform your realities. See you soon. This is Ozarks at Large. Ozarks at Large is underwritten, in part, by the Walton Family Charitable Support Foundation. Support for KUAF comes from the Northwest Arkansas Business Journal, featuring Young Professionals, The Fast 15, and networking events in the latest edition, plus local business news in Northwest Arkansas. Subscriptions and information available at 725-0394 or nwabusinessjournal.com. Tomorrow on a Friday edition of Ozarks at Large, we take a trip to Westwood Gardens to find out what we need to know to get gardens ready for the growing season. Plus, we get our regular Friday visits from Michael Tilley of Talk Business and Politics, Becca Martin-Brown, Features Editor at the Northwest Arkansas Democrat Gazette, and Courtney Lanning, Film Critic with the Democrat Gazette. That and more on tomorrow's Ozarks at Large. You can listen to Ozarks at Large on your schedule as a podcast through any major podcast platform. This is 91.3 FM, KUAF Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Springdale, and Lee Creek. KUAF is a listener-supported service of the University of Arkansas, and Ozarks at Large is a production of KUAF. I'm Timothy Dennis. And I'm Matthew Moore. Contributors today included Rachel Sanchez-Smith, Jacqueline Froelich, Daniel Carruth, and Timothy Dennis, who also produced today's Sound Perimeter, which is written and hosted by Leah Uribe. The Northwest Arkansas Business Journal Report with Paul Gatling is produced by Stephanie Brock and comes to us through our partnership with Talk Business and Politics. Thank you so much for spending part of your Thursday with us. We'll be back tomorrow again at noon and 7 p.m. with a Friday edition of Ozarks at Large. Until then, be well.